All right, we're, we're continuing on in our series in the book of Acts. If you've been with us at all over the last few months, Acts, as you probably know, or if this is your first time, you don't, kind of chronicles the growth of the church as Acts 1.8 lays out from Jerusalem and then into Judea and then to Samaria and then to the uttermost ends of the earth, or at that time, the known world, which was Rome and all of its empire. And last week, if you could boil down all that Lyle said to kind of one key point, I felt like it was this. The gospel is for different types of people, all different types of people. Well, this week, the point's just gonna go a step further and say it's not only for different types of people, the gospel is for different groups of people, entire cultures and nations of people. So we're going to start later in the book of Acts, or I'm sorry, in Acts 17. So I want to catch you up in context. First, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are continuing their missionary journey from Philippi. They go to a city named Thessalonica. In that city, they share the gospel and a bunch of Gentiles believe. It makes the Jews mad. So the Jews start rioting and run them out of town. So they go to another city, Berea. And there, the Jews begin to believe in great ways. So the Jews back in Thessalonica hear about that. They get really mad again. They come to Berea and start a riot and mess things up. And so Paul has to run for his life to a city called Athens, the epicenter of Greek culture. Um, And there he's dropped off by himself. And that kicks off where we're going to start today and focus on. So stand with me for the reading of God's word. It's a long passage, so if it gets uh, too long for you, feel free to sit down. We're going to start in verse 15. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with all those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time in doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you because you are near to us and all people around the world. Father, I confess on behalf of all of us that we are naturally just blind to that reality, blind that you are near and in our midst. So, Father, I ask that you would help our eyes to be open today and our hearts affected and our lives even changed as we encounter you who is in our midst. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Anyone remember the first time you saw a really big city? Now, I know Louisville is a big city. But if you're from around where I'm from, Monticello, Kentucky, one of those places we mispronounce, Louisville's a big city. Atlanta is a massive city. But I'm talking about a city like Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Anybody been to Dubai in here? All right. Yeah, one person. Okay. So Dubai has the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa. It looks like it's not even real when you see it. And when I saw Dubai, I'll just explain it this way. We were flying out of Dubai, and you know how the plane will kind of ascend and make a turn as it goes over the city. Um, We were in the air for two minutes, and I was still looking out the window up at the top of this tower. That's how big it is, okay? So what was going through my mind was the audacity of these people to try to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. It's like the Tower of Babel. What are they trying to prove? That they're the greatest people in the world? It's going all this waste. Do we really need a building that tall? Now we're talking about Paul himself walking into a city that would have likewise caused his eyes to lift to see some amazing, famous, famous things. And he has every reason to respond similarly to me. One, he's on the run for his life, okay? I might just wanna lay low if that's that's me. Two, he's by himself. Paul didn't like to roll by himself. He always had a team that he went on mission together with. And then three, he's in Athens. I mean, this is the epicenter of Greek culture, mythology, architecture, food. I mean, the Olympics, right? Anybody like uh, my big fat Greek wedding, part one or two? Yeah, this is where that came from. What a great place. But instead, Paul has something else on the forefront of his mind when he walks into this place. And we get a glimpse of it in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, this wasn't an investigation. 
Paul wasn't doing an archaeological dig to find out what people were into. He just looked around, probably didn't even have to walk very far to notice because according to historical record, they say there could have been at least 73,000 statues of idols in Athens at this time. Now, to put that in perspective, I was trying to think, what is there 73,000 of in Louisville that I could compare this to that you see on a daily basis? But I looked it up, and the population of J-Town um, is, is one-third of that, roughly. So three times the amount of people who are in J-Town, Kentucky, that's how many idols were in that place. It's a mind blowing. So many that it makes sense as to why an author of that time said it was easier to find a God than a man in Athens. They were everywhere. And Paul's response to this was, quote, he was greatly distressed. Now, what exactly does that mean? Is he upset, viciously angry at the foolish idolatry of the Athenians that they would do something like this? How Who do they think they are? My goodness. Well, the translation of the word says that this can mean a mixture of anger, grief, and indignation. So the way that I think that you can explain this in a way that really kind of catches uh, catches the, the thrust of the word is like, and I know, God forbid, we don't ever want to imagine this, but coming home and finding your spouse cheating on you with someone else. The, the anger, the grief, the indignation that would well up within you as you saw the person you loved and committed to do cheating on you with someone else? How dare they? It's a horrible thought. And yet this is how Paul felt. And why did he feel this way? Well, I would say that Paul had experienced the one true only God. None other. In fact, I would say that God and the way that he reached down into Paul's life, as you know, and kind of knocked him off his high horse, literally and figuratively, God was very, very real to Paul. And in light of Jesus being so real, which I think is a really hard thing for all of us as Christians, is for Jesus to be real to us. Uh, even the, the longer that we walk with him, he becomes a concept or or something that we just kind of follow through the motions rather than being a real person that we have encountered and will one day see face to face. But Paul here, because he's experienced God in this way, looks around at all these false gods and just breaks his heart. And something inside him says, this is not the way it should be. You ever feel that way? You ever find yourself experiencing something in your life or around you that's filled with idolatry, filled with bowing down and committing uh, yourself to, or others committing themselves to something other than Jesus Christ? And it's just like, why? That's just wrong. That shouldn't be this way. But one of the things that came to mind as I was thinking through this is, you ever watch the local news? I do that besides me. I mean, it's easy to turn it on after dinner, family sitting around. And I don't know how many times I don't make it through a local news show, not because it's poorly done, but because of the stories that are being told about our very own beloved Louisville. I mean, it's just one thing after another of violence and death and conflict um, and murder. 
And I just, there's something in me that just says, this is not the way it should be. I can't even watch this. I'm going to turn it off. Anybody with me? I think what we're seeing there is a bowing down to an idol of power, having power over your own life and over the lives of others, especially those who are your enemies. But if that doesn't relate to you, what about an idol of, of comfort or an idol of control that expresses itself in the way of, man, I, I've got to have the perfect family. Um, things have to flow like this for my children. If you're not familiar with some of the idols that you struggle with, and we all struggle with them, think of it this way. What do you fear the most? What are your deepest, darkest nightmares, the things that keep you up at night, that, oh, if that happened, that would be the worst thing ever. That often shows underneath it what idol you're bowing down to. So I can't imagine if one of my children doesn't follow Christ. Yeah, that's a terrible fear. And if it keeps you up at night, then there's a part of you that's seeking to worship control over your family. I want to be able to totally control exactly what happens. I can't imagine if my kid um, walks away from our family and gets into things and and, uh, we end up having this strained relationship or moves away, for heaven's sake, becomes a missionary and lives in another country. I mean, there's this control that wells up within us. And so there's idolatry that we all see except maybe for some of you who don't really see where idolatry lands in your life. And if that's you, if you don't see where you're bowing down to things, not necessarily metal images or or wooden statues, um, I would say that maybe God hasn't come near to you in such a way that your eyes have started to open up. Because the closer that you walk with Christ, the closer you get to him, the more you realize how much your heart seeks to attach and bow down to things other than Christ. And the more Christ changes that in you. One of the authors that I read this past week said this, we don't erect idols because we think that they are actually gods. We erect them because we think we are gods. We project ourselves onto these hunks of stone and worship our own image, or at least the image we would like ourselves to be. I mean, this This city of Athens is is not really that different from the city in which we find ourselves if God is coming near and opening your eyes to the idolatry that is around us. This is true of us then from Romans 1. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And yet the closer God comes, the more we see this is true of us and the more it grieves our hearts and the more we realize that it's true of others and the more it grieves our hearts for others, leading us to actually respond differently, not just see the world differently, but take action. And that's what Paul does here. Verse 17, if you'll look at it with me, look how Paul responds. He says this, so Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to bait with him. And some even asked, what is this? This is a great word here. Babbler trying to say, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, which was kind of a little bit nicer thing to say than call him a babbler. 
So they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So let's take note of what Paul actually does in response. The disgust in his heart doesn't just stay there. It leads him to something. He responds by speaking to people, but not just apathetically. I would be tempted to just be like, man, they're just, they're crazy. They're just filled with idol worship. I ain't doing nothing. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I'm gonna go have a Euro. All right, and y'all just continue doing your idol worship. Or self-righteous condemnation. These people are idiots. And they're bowing down to a statue. What in the world? They're all, just let them go to hell. Let them go their way. Because I'm not. I know the direction I'm headed. But Paul instead strategically goes and speaks to people. He starts in the synagogue. Why the synagogue? Well, if that's where people are hearing about God, then you think that would be where people would be really excited to hear good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then he also goes to the marketplace. Well, why does he go to the marketplace? Why does he go to Walmart? Because that's where people are. It's where people are having conversations. It's where life is happening. So he goes down to Walmart and imagine this. I don't think he sets up shop like a street preacher. Um, I think he goes down to the tent aisle. Why? Because he was a tent maker. So he's over in the camping department of Walmart. He's like, man, yeah, this is some good tents here. This one quality, that quality is better than this. Look at the canvas on this one. You got any pegs? But what about your rope? You know, he's just having normal conversation, talking to people about things that he knows about. And as he develops relationships with people, they might say, yeah, man, well, that's cool. I'm glad you're here as a tent maker. Well, you know, what brought you to Athens? And Paul's able to say to them, huh, funny you ask. Glad to tell you, you know, I'm kind of on the run from this other city because people were really mad about something I said. Well, what'd you say? Well, you know, I was just talking about this guy named Jesus and the fact that he rose from the dead. What? Tell me more. See, it's just a normal conversation that he, I'm, I'm sure he's having with people and it's getting the attention of others. But I just want to say here, sometimes we don't respond like Paul when we see idolatry and it affects our hearts because we don't put ourselves in the best places to just have real life conversations with people. So a few years ago, I worked downtown at Humana. I was up on the ninth floor in a call center and I worked among people who, man, very obviously didn't have relationships with Jesus and were open to talking about him. But we worked in a call center and I wasn't gonna climb up over the side of the cubicle ignoring the person yelling at me in my ear and talk to the person and say, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? It was a little awkward. No, but the place where people did have conversation was where? Smoke break. Now I don't smoke. And you may be like, I'm a Christian. I got a conviction against smoking. You know, that's, that's okay. And I'm not up here telling you, you know, smoking the Bible outlaws or anything like that. But um, I don't want to smell like smoke. You probably don't either if you're not a smoker. And uh, I don't want to get secondhand smoke. So the temptation for me was to never go to smoke break. It was to enjoy a quiet moment by myself. But if I did that, I'd miss out on opportunities to get to have normal conversations around the ashtray with people about life, about what's going on, and probably about Jesus. So I want to challenge us to consider to have conversations in the best place to have conversation with people. So we move on from there. Enough buzz was produced by what Paul is talking about in the marketplace. 
that he gets the attention of these guys called Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Without going into any real detail about what they believe or what they were, they were essentially the religious and moral authority in Athens. They were the culture makers. They were the elite and educated people of that time. And what got their attention? Well, it wasn't necessarily the winsomeness of Paul. Now, why do I say that? I mean, they called him a babbler. Anybody know what a babbler means? It's a pecking chicken that spits out seeds. I don't know how it would feel if I was talking to somebody about Jesus and I overheard people behind them saying, that guy, he's just a pecking chicken spitting out seeds. It's like, man, I guess I'm not a very good speaker. (laughs) But what does get their attention here is the fact that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And this was fascinating to people who were always seeking to learn something new, especially as it related to spiritual things. And so the application point I wanna make here for us, church, is sometimes we don't respond like Paul has responded here because we're afraid that we might say the wrong thing or sound foolish or lead people astray. I mean, can we be real about that? I mean, I served in Ethiopia for three years as a missionary. It was my paid vocation to tell people about Jesus. That's what I did for three years. And then fast forward to today, when I have an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus, I get nervous. And sometimes I think I might say the wrong thing. So it's better if I just don't say anything at all. Isn't that crazy? I mean, can you identify with that at all? We do that. And the thing is, and this was true with Paul, the power of, of the gospel is not in the eloquence of the words that we speak or the apologetical argument that we lay out for people, but it's the fact that we preach Jesus and the resurrection in a world where everything is temporary. I mean, the car you drive, it's gonna go kaput. Feeling me? You know, the, the meal that we're all going to share, uh, or not together, but the meal that we're all going to have after this service is going to come to an end. You know, the worship that we enjoy up here, anybody with me, you grieve it when it's over. It's like, man, why does every song have to come to an end? I just wish it could keep going. But even if we had like a three-day nonstop worship service and uh, Elliot passed out afterward, <laughs> it would still come to an end. You know, because we live in a world that's absolutely temporary. We don't know anything that's eternal that we can see and touch and taste and feel. And so when we talk about Jesus and the resurrection, there's something in the heart of people that goes, man, I want that. Like, maybe not Jesus. Maybe that's strange to me. I don't really understand what you're saying, but you're talking about something eternal in a non-eternal world. Like, I'm interested. That's the power of our words and Romans 1:16 Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, not the power of Paul, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And I've seen some pretty amazing miracles in my life. People who were healed from sickness, demons that were cast out, all kinds of stuff, some in Africa, some here in the United States. And as I've thought about this, 
Those miracles were really exciting and compelling, but they were absolutely nothing compared to the miracle of God taking someone's heart and changing it. Because who can do that? One of the things that I said to Africans all the time when I was sharing the gospel and that I say to my, my two-year-old daughter all the time now is like uh, when she comes forward, it's like she came forward in a service here a few weeks ago and she said, I pushed, which basically meant in the in child and sojourn kids, she pushed somebody and she was coming to confess to daddy. She felt bad about it, which was, I was proud of her. That was good. But she took it as a gospel moment to say, oh, we put, why do we push, bet, bet? It's because we're sinners and our hearts are dirty. Our hearts are dirty. But who can clean our hearts? Can mommy clean it? And she goes, no. Like, can daddy clean your heart? No. It's like, who can clean your heart? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. That's a miracle of miracles. And God's given you, Christian, the power in your weak, stumbling, limited words to access the greatest miracle in the world, the changing of a heart. That's the power of the gospel. And God invites us all to get to participate in that. So next, we're gonna continue to see how this power applies not only to individuals, but entire cultures of people. Here, Paul is then brought into the Areopagus. That's a hard word to say. I practiced it real hard this week. So the Areopagus was basically just a court that had moral and religious authority. And in this court, I want you to think of it, Tim Keller puts it this way, imagine it as the faculties of modern day Harvard and Yale and Princeton, the, the elite, the educated, the culture shapers. And this is no joke. Like I know Paul is a ninja and he can like do things that we're just like, what? You just got stoned to death and you just stood back up. What's happening there? Tell me more. Um, but I would say that he went into this moment pretty nervous because here's what's on the line. If he comes on too weak, they're just going to add Jesus to their list of idols, their pantheon of gods like Hindus. Oh yeah, Jesus. Great. Put up his statue over there. Thank you, Paul. If he comes on too strong, the preaching of Jesus could potentially be prohibited by that court throughout Athens and the surrounding area. And that's something that, that's a line that Paul doesn't want to cross on his own. He doesn't want to cause that to happen. If, if he preaches the resurrection and that just happens, then that's okay. But he doesn't want to be the person that in his words um, says something offensive that uh, causes the prohibiting of the gospel. But instead, Paul Paul steps into this nervous as I'm sure he was and God gives him words to accomplish that miracle that we were talking about. The greatest miracle that Greece had ever seen up until that point of history and words that showcase not only what God does there, but what he aims to do all over the world. And as I walk into this little sermon that Paul preaches, that's just a few sentences long. I just want you to know that it's such a joy to be able to share this with you this morning and kind of ironic because Acts 17, Paul in Athens, was a passage that we used almost daily in Ethiopia. And as we learned from this passage, we saw hundreds of people come to know Christ. 
And the thing is, the longer I'm back in the States after that experience, the more I'm convinced that what God does over there is really no different than what he does here. And that Acts is not a back then sort of book. It's a today, here, now, J-Town sort of book. And I believe God wants to do what he's about to do here in this little passage um, right here in J-Town, right here in Louisville, through this church. So here's some things we're gonna learn from Paul. First of all, he tells a story. It's a C to C story, so to speak, a creation to Christ story. So verse 24, he starts, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Well, what's that? That's creation, right? He just starts at the beginning of the Bible story. And then on to verse 31, he ends, for he has set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by a man he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, what's that? Creation to Christ, the resurrection of Christ. This is the story of the Bible that Paul lays out in a very simple way. And so it's a little bit crazy as you think about it. He's standing in front of what would be like the faculties of elite universities, and he tells them a story. Blows my mind. Why would he do this? It's because as ironic as it is and as profound as it is, we all get story. We all understand story. From the time that we can understand uh, our mother's words, we're often hearing stories. If not from books, then we're hearing stories about family and things that are going on around us. Story is rooted in our lives. Think about this. Maybe go back to high school literature class or English class. I know that's painful for some of us, but just bear with me for a moment. Ever remember this diagram? It's a storyline. It's a plot diagram. You're like, oh no, I thought I was past this. I never thought I'd have to see this again. So exposition is where we start. What is that? It's just the context, the beginning of the story. And then you have a conflict, a good guy and a bad guy who are against each other. And then rising action that leads up to a climax where the good guy and the bad guy are at the height of their battle. And then the good guy wins and there's falling action that leads to a resolution. Resolution is what? They lived happily ever after, the end. It's how the story sums up. Now, where did this come from? Was it Aristotle? Was it your, you know, freshman English teacher who created it? You know, I don't know who created the, the diagram, but to me, God was the one who fashioned the very essence of what a story is. And it's the mission of God that's playing out that we're a part of right now. So look at it this way. Instead of exposition, creation. It's the way that God starts off his story. Instead of uh, conflict and rising action, that's the fall. Good against evil. Satan against God. Sin, the flesh. Here we go. Climax. Instead of climax, redemption. It's Christ on the cross, buried and risen. That's the height of our faith. And then finally, resolution. What's that? We call it consummation. It's, it's how the story is summed up. And the crazy thing about Christianity is we have a book that tells us how the story ends. That's great. That's really helpful. I'm glad. If I didn't know how the story ended, it'd be a little nerve wracking. The story resolves itself in that now we're in the church age where people are 
have the opportunity to come to know Christ, either accept him or reject him. And if they accept him, then when he returns to judge the world, they get to go and be with him forever. And if they reject him, then when he comes to judge the world, then they're separated from him forever. And throughout all of eternity, the world, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and give honor to this climax of the story. This this lamb of God who was slain and, and shed his blood to buy a people for himself, to be brought into the fellowship of father, son, and spirit. That's the story from which all stories flow. I mean, I know that uh, there's some movies or stories that are out there now where the bad guy wins or the good guy. This is really common and it's common in cartoons. It's kind of weird. It's like the good guy is also a bad guy. And you're like, I don't know how to, what do I do with that? It just makes me feel weird on the inside. The good guy is supposed to win. That's because God has written out the story. And in his story, he wins. The bad guy loses. So what's the point here? Paul tells a story because story is compelling to all of us. Two, Paul uses words that make sense. Look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. That's a pretty nice compliment. Now, I don't know about you, but I might've been tempted to get up there and say something like, I really like euros or I really like uh, my big fat Greek wedding. And you guys made that movie, right? So it's good. I like Greek culture. <clears throat> it's kind of what Paul's doing, but he says it a little better than me. Um, he's, he gives, kind of gives him a compliment. I see that you're very religious. Now that doesn't mean that Paul is saying, hey, your, your worship of idols is great. I want to commend you for that. What's Paul doing here? He's essentially avoiding putting a barrier smack in front of them. Because if Paul steps up to the plate and says, people of Athens, you're a bunch of idiots for worshiping idols. Is anybody going to listen to the next words he say? I mean, I wouldn't be totally offended. Now, would that be true? In some ways, yeah. I mean, he could get up and say that, but he doesn't want to put a barrier in front of them. And so if you remember a few weeks ago, Lyle talked about the idea of we want to work really hard as a church and individually to not put unnecessary barriers between people and Christ. Okay, barriers that say you have to do this or not do this, and then you can become a Christian. Okay, so what Paul's doing is he's removing these barriers out of the way. And he's going to speak to them in a way that they can understand. He's going to use words that make sense. So verse 23, he uses a bridge to get to the gospel. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You see how that bridge was there rooted in the culture. He says, you know, I'm walking around. I'm so upset because I see all these idols. But then suddenly, light bulb, there's one that says an inscription to an unknown God. And Paul goes, these people are longing for something eternal. They're longing to know God, but they're so blind they don't even know it. And so they would do something like put a placard down that says to an unknown God. And Paul uses that as something they can understand and relate to, to bridge straight to sharing the gospel with them. 
You see what I'm saying about Paul using words that make sense? So what this does is it's a different approach. I grew up in a context, and I don't know about you, where if you walked into church, the, pro, the approach was turn or burn in not as nice language. You with me? Paul, instead of saying turn or burn, is saying, I want to tell you about Christ. And I'm going to tell you about his coming judgment um, and that you should turn or burn. We're going to get there, but I'm going to, first of all, talk to you in a way that makes sense, and I'm going to exalt Christ and I'm going to tell you who he is. And in light of him and his glory, all these things of earth are going to fade. They're going to, they're going to be shown to be how foolish they are, to be nothing in light of the God that he is. You see how that's a different approach than just turn or burn. And I love that Paul does that. <clears throat> so maybe I want to say this to some of you who are here, and you're saying, you know, I, I've been coming to church some. The more, the more I learn about God, the more I do realize how I'm tripped up often. And I'm, I'm falling over things that I'm devoted to other than Christ. And my life is, is messy on the inside. People may not even see it. Well, I was, I was thinking that you should really hear that the answer to that isn't just stop. Just, just stop worshiping idols, stop being a mess, get, your, get yourself together. That's not the message that we're proclaiming here at this church or from this Bible. Recently, I was talking to a neighbor and every time I come around him, he just starts confessing things. I'm like, hey, and he's like, hey, man, I'm on drugs again. And I don't live, it's not like I live in a bad neighborhood. I mean, this is just the life of, of people around us often hidden behind closed doors that look really nice. And uh, so he starts confessing all these things and I open up to Ephesians 2 and I just say, hey man, look, it's by grace that we are saved through faith. And this, this is the gift of God. We don't have to do anything to receive it. It's freely given. And I was like, what, what do you think that verse is saying? And he was like, yeah, man, that's good. Wow. He's like, man, I, I, I think I know. It's telling me I need to go to church more and I need to just kind of get my stuff together. And I was like, what, where'd you see that? that There's nothing in there about that. And I think that's the blindness of when, when the light of Christ is shining on us, we're blind and trying to see. And our thought process goes, I just got to get together. And these church people, they just got it together, but we're confessing to you. We're just being honest in a culture that's not usually that honest. We don't have it together. And idolatry is something we all struggle with. And I think God is calling us to himself to say this. Don't just stop. Cry out to me, the Lord of heaven and earth. God, help me. I can't overcome these idols. Can you help me overcome these idols? And I believe he can. Paul continues, shows where God is already present and active in the life of this culture. Look at verse 28. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, this is not just a romantic poem that he found somewhere that's like, oh, well, this, is, this is great right here. It's a good parental poem. I'm gonna use it. I found it while I was walking around the city of Athens. No, no, this actually comes from a hymn to Zeus, 
the Greek God. Now, can you imagine a preacher standing in front of you and using a hymn to another God to lead you to faith in Christ? This is like sacrilegious. Be like a preacher quoting Lady Gaga or something. Why would you do that? Well, this uh, past week when we were watching the Super Bowl and halftime show came on and Lady Gaga came out and put her show on. Um, after we were, I found myself all week singing a lot of catchy songs that she was singing. And uh, one of the lines that's just been going through my head over and over and over is this. <clears throat> I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. I'm, and I'm singing it. And I started thinking about it. And, uh, and I was just thinking, you know, what she's saying there, I think, is getting at this blind longing for something more. So I'm on the right track. I was born this way, which is kind of a self-justification of however I am is, is good and is right. And that's a longing for rightness. Another way to say rightness is righteousness. And the only person who can give us rightness or righteousness is God through Christ. So you see how even that statement is a statement of longing and groping for what is eternal, what God has to offer us in the gospel. And so what if, as crazy it may sound, you're talking to somebody at smoke break this week about the Super Bowl show and you quote Lady Gaga on your way to sharing the gospel with them? I mean, that is if they enjoy listening to Lady Gaga and know what you're talking about. You may be at a place where that might totally mark you as a crazy person um, and that nobody wants to talk to you. Maybe you should talk and quote some Hank Williams Jr. Um, and people would understand more of what you're saying. You with me? Paul goes on to explain why culture works this way. This is amazing. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is so far ahead of us when it comes to his mission. It's his mission. And he's done something remarkable to take the pressure off you. What is it? He created cultures. People don't do that. He empowers them with the creative ability to make culture. That means I think he kind of likes culture. Now, not the bad parts of culture, but really the rich, beautiful parts of culture, the things that we enjoy. He maintains culture. His purpose isn't to just wipe culture out so that when we get to heaven, we're all speaking um, English and we all have one mono culture. When you look at the book of Revelation, it says, what, that who is gathered around the throne? People from every nation, tribe, language. That means to some extent, language and culture is maintained around the throne in heaven through eternity. So God loves culture and the good parts of culture, like a diamond prism that has all these different angles you can look at it, speaks to the glory and power and richness and beauty of God. And so God has worked his way down into every culture and placed things there so that people might feel their way toward him and find him, even though he's not far away from them. 
But I want to note this. Perhaps reach out for him is kind of an ironic statement because we know that you can't and no one can feel their way toward God and find him on your own because we're too blind. We can't get to him on our own. He has to come to us. I mean, it would be like going into one of those haunted houses where it's a dark room and you have to feel your way through it to get to the next doorway and people are there to jump out and grab you along the way. It was just terrifying. I don't know why anybody would do that. Some of y'all are like, ooh, I wanna do that. But imagine a haunted house room like that where there is no exit and you're just groping. Imagine the longing that grows in you the longer you're in there and the more you feel around and cannot find a way out. And that is our story. That is Athens. That's J-Town. That's me apart from Christ. And God says, how are they going to hear? How are they going to find out that there's an exit if that's the case? Paul asks a similar question in Romans 10. Says this, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. No one is getting out of that dark room unless someone preaches to them. Same's true for you and me. And there's a great urgency to this, Paul continues, that the days of ignorance are over. What does that mean? It means that there's a day that's been set, a court date, so to speak. And there's been a man or a judge appointed to rule over that court date. And there's been a summons issued to your mailbox that you are due in court to stand before that judge on a certain day. That's what Paul says here as he continues about the day of judgment. Now, if I told you that you're due at court and that a judge been appointed, you may be like, what? what? How do you know that? But if you receive a summons in your mailbox, it becomes real. You're gonna be nervous. Well, that summons has arrived. And what is that summons for all of us? It's the fact that a man has been raised from the dead, never to die again. And his name is Jesus Christ. So that's the urgency, the coming day in which we will stand before him. And I don't know about you, but I want a really good lawyer if I'm ever going into court. And for that kind of court date, I want the best lawyer. The Bible says that there's one offered to us. In Romans chapter eight, verse 34, for the one who puts their faith in what God has provided, Jesus Christ, then who is the one who condemns? No one on that day. No one can condemn you because Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Or in other words, will be your lawyer. So I know so many things in Christianity are just mind-blowing and are hard to make sense of, but think of it this way. The God before whom we will stand in judgment is the same God who laid down his life for us and is willing to represent us on that day and declare us free.
And so what was the response that day? Some sneered when they heard about the resurrection. Some said, we'll hear you again about this. And some believed. And I just wanna ask you, and challenge you, what's the response here today? Will there be some who sneer? Will there be some who wanna hear more? And will there be some who believe? And don't you want to believe? Don't you want a lawyer for that day? And don't you want to be a part of this great mission that God is doing all around the world? Let's pray.